Welcome back to Roshcast, episode number 32. We're back to our usual routine for this week, reviewing whatever the question bank serves up. Let's get started with a rapid review. Let's review some more material from the Rosh blog site. Remember that all blog posts can be seen at roshreview.com blog, including materials related to this and all prior episodes. With summer ending, I'm definitely planning to get into a bit more hiking. Let's talk about Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. How does it present clinically? Patients with Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever often complain of abrupt onset of severe headaches, photophobia, vomiting, diarrhea, and myalgias. They may also have a macular papular eruption on their palms and soles. Remember to elicit a history of hiking or camping. And what's the name of the transmitting vector for Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever? You're thinking of the dermacentra tick here. And how is Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever treated? Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever is treated with doxycycline, even in children. Great review. Sounds like you're ready for a hiking trip of your own. I don't think so. I'm going to stick to the cities for now. Let's get on with the new material. This first question is pretty detailed, but I think it's an important topic and a good opportunity to review some test-taking strategy. Here goes. A healthy two-year-old boy is brought in by his pregnant mother with hematemesis and bloody diarrhea and a possible seizure. His vitals are a blood pressure of 68 over 32, a heart rate of 170, respiratory rate of 30, and a temperature of 36.8. He's pale, lethargic, cool, and clammy. His abdomen is diffusely tender. Labs are notable for a bicarb of 16, an anion gap of 21, with a white count of 17,000. His rectal is hemocult negative. Which of the following pH, PCO2, and bicarb values would you expect on his ABG? Is it A, a pH of 7.23 with a PCO2 of 47 and a bicarb of 20? Is it B, a pH of 7.33, a PCO2 of 32 with a bicarb of 14? Is it C, a pH of 7.43 with a PCO2 of 40 and a bicarb of 24? Or is it D, a pH of 7.52 with a PCO2 of 28 and a bicarb of 24? That was a ton, so let me summarize. This is a healthy kid with hematemesis and reportedly bloody diarrhea who's hypotensive and tachycardic. The low bicarb and high anion gap strongly suggest a metabolic acidosis. Since he's guaiac negative, we should be concerned that he ingested something to change his stool color. Perfect logic thus far. Already, we can eliminate choices C and D since those have normal to alkalotic pHs. So now we're left with choices A and B. In choice A, the PCO2 is 47. In choice B, it's 32. Since this child is hyperventilating with a respiratory rate of 30, he's compensating. So the PCO2 should be low, not high. This leaves us with choice B to be the correct answer. Great. So you didn't even have to know the poisoning to get this question right. Essentially, you need to look at the anion gap, the low bicarb, and the respiratory rate to eliminate the other three answer choices. That's right. Classic test-taking strategies at play here. But we can also probably figure out the ingestion. The clue here is that the patient's mother is pregnant. Pregnant women take prenatal vitamins, which often contain iron. In general, in a test question, if it's tox and someone is pregnant, think iron. I'm not sure this holds up in reality, but for board prep, it's really not bad advice. This patient has many of the classic components of an acute iron overdose. We have GI irritation, which usually occurs during the first stage. We also have an anion gap metabolic acidosis. This usually occurs during stage three. And in severe cases, you would get dehydration and shock, which this poor guy is exhibiting with his hypotension and tachycardia. We'll post a great chart of the stages up on Twitter, so make sure to follow us at Roshcast and be on the lookout for that. But I digress. So we've diagnosed the iron overdose, and clearly this guy is extremely sick. What are we going to do for him? We'll start with supportive measures to bring up his blood pressure. In severe toxicity, like in this case, IV deferoxamine can be given. Whole bowel irrigation can and should be considered in large ingestions. 
And remember that activated charcoal has no role as it doesn't bind iron. And don't forget to consult your local poison center, as they can be really, really helpful in cases like this one. And one last really hard but related question, what bacterial organism is associated with iron poisoning? There's a bacteria associated with an iron poisoning? Yes, there is, in fact. That would be Yersinia enterocolitica, as both deferoxamine and the iron-associated GI infection both foster the growth of the organism. Interesting. Let's move on to question two. Where is the uterine fundus palpable at 36 weeks gestation? Is it A, at the umbilicus, B, at the xiphoid process, C, between the pubic symphysis and the umbilicus, or D, between the umbilicus and the xiphoid process? Thankfully, we covered this in the rapid review last week, but repetition always helps. The gravid uterus is palpable at choice B, the xiphoid process, at 36 weeks. And when is the uterus palpable at choice A, the umbilicus, choice C, between the pubic symphysis and the umbilicus, and choice D, between the umbilicus and the xiphoid process? There are actually several important dates to remember to use for fundal height landmarks. At 12 weeks, the uterus should be palpable at the pubic symphysis. At 20 weeks, the uterus should be palpable at the umbilicus. At 36 weeks, the uterus should be palpable at the xiphoid process. And lastly, between 37 and 40 weeks, the fundal height actually regresses to a few centimeters below the xiphoid process. So 12 weeks for the top of the pubic symphysis, 20 weeks for the umbilicus, and 36 weeks for the xiphoid process. Exactly. We're going back over to the PZD for this next one. A three-week-old boy presents with two days of non-bilious projectile vomiting. Examination reveals a mass in the infant's right upper quadrant. On a barium upper GI report, the radiologist states that there is a, quote, string sign. Which of the following is the infant at greatest risk of developing? Is it A, hyperchloremia? Is it B, hyperkalemia? C, hypokalemia? Or D, hyponatremia? So this is another two-step question. First, identify the diagnosis, then identify the derangement. Let's start with a problem. Three weeks, boy, palpable right upper quadrant mass, string sign on the upper GI series. They're describing a pyloric stenosis here. And I know that this is associated with hypokalemia, which is choice C. That's right, but let's work through this one a bit more. With pyloric stenosis, infants vomit, usually a lot, usually after their feeds. Vomiting can lead to a metabolic alkalosis as gastric acids are lost. As gastric acid is lost to the vomitus, the infant compensates. Cells exchange potassium from the serum for hydrogen ions, moving hydrogen out and potassium in. This leads to the hypokalemia. And specifically, the excessive loss of gastric hydrochloric acid leads to hypochloremic, hypokalemic metabolic alkalosis. This is why choice A, hyperchloremia, is wrong. Choice D is wrong because as the child becomes more and more dehydrated, increased concentrations of aldosterone trigger the kidneys to resorb more sodium and excrete potassium in an effort to retain as much fluid as possible. This leads to hypernatremia, not hyponatremia. Enough electrolytes for now. Let's review some of the other features of pyloric stenosis. It's most commonly seen between two weeks and two months of age, and it's more common in boys than girls. The vomiting is usually projectile and non-bilious and occurs right after feeds. And on exam, infants appear hungry between feeds and may have a peristalsic wave moving from the left to the right. In some cases, you may be able to feel an olive-shaped mass in the right upper quadrant. And as we said in the question, diagnosis can be made by an upper GI series. It can also be made by ultrasound, which would show a thickened and elongated pylorus. Treatment here is with surgery, specifically the Ramstad procedure. Remember to correct the patient's electrolytes first before proceeding with the surgery. Resuscitate before operate. Sounds reasonable. We have another OB emergency up next. An 18-year-old woman with her last menstrual period six weeks ago presents to the ED. 
Bedside sonography shows an empty uterus with free fluid and likely blood clots throughout her lower abdomen. Which of the following is associated with this condition? Is it A, double decidual sac, B, fetal heart activity is never identified, C, relative maternal bradycardia, or D, the presence of gestational and yolk sac? A missed period, free fluid, and empty uterus? This is highly suspicious for a ruptured ectopic pregnancy. I'm going to go with choice C, relative maternal bradycardia. That's right. Relative or reflex bradycardia is known to occur with hemoperitoneum. This makes relying on the heart rate as an indicator of hemorrhage not very reliable. Do we have any sense of why this occurs physiologically? Although it hasn't been proven with certainty, it's thought to occur due to hemoperitoneum, irritating the vagus nerve as it traverses the peritoneum. The irritation leads to a decrease in heart rate. It's also thought to be a somewhat protective mechanism as this slows the heart with severe abdominal hemorrhage to increase filling time and therefore increase cardiac output. Interesting. Certainly makes our job even more difficult if the person with normal vitals might have a significant intra-abdominal hemorrhage. What about the other answer choices here, though? Choice A, the double decidual sign, that's an early sign of an intrauterine pregnancy on ultrasound. It's usually seen in the first five weeks post-LMP. Choice B, fetal heart activity, that's a little more tricky. You can have heart activity if the pregnancy is developing, but in the wrong place, like the fallopian tube. Lastly, the presence of choice D, the gestational yolk sac, that confirms an IUP. Nice review. Looks like we're still on ultrasound for this next one. Keep that sonoprobe in your hand. Which ultrasound finding is consistent with pulmonary edema? Is it A, A lines, B, the absence of lung sliding, C, B lines, or D, the presence of lung sliding? We've covered this before, but it's certainly worth reviewing. Pulmonary edema can be identified by B lines on lung ultrasound. And what about the other findings I mentioned? What pathologies are they associated with? Well, A lines are the horizontal artifacts that occur in normal lungs. This is an expected finding. Absence of lung sliding can be seen in patients with a pneumothorax, apnea, or even with a very superficial pneumonia. Whereas presence of lung sliding is again normal and can be seen with all healthy lung tissue. Nice, but that was a bit too short, so I'm going to give you the next one as well. A 47-year-old previously healthy man is transferred to your facility in Arizona with acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS, as well as cardiogenic shock. Symptoms began two days ago with muscle aches, fever, chills, cough, nausea and vomiting, and diaphoresis. Two weeks prior, he was camping in an old, unkempt cabin in the San Rafael Valley in Arizona. Which of the following tests will confirm the suspected diagnosis? Is it A, cardiac biopsy, B, DNA probe for arthroconidia, C, hantavirus ELISA, or D, leptospira serologies? This is definitely not something we deal with too frequently in the Northeast. There are two major clues here, though. He was camping in an old, unkempt cabin in Arizona, and he now has a severe cardiopulmonary syndrome. Together, these indicate that he may have been exposed to hantavirus. So the answer here would be choice C, to test for hanta with an ELISA. Exactly. The hantavirus genus, specifically the Synombre virus in the U.S., is transmitted by deer mice. They're usually found west of the Mississippi River. They can cause cardiopulmonary disease, renal disease, as well as hemorrhagic fevers. And the exposure is to mice, feces, and urine, with symptoms generally starting about one to two weeks after the exposure, as in this case. Like many viruses, symptoms are usually vague, including myalgias, fever, nausea and vomiting, malaise, and dizziness. Eventually, the symptoms may worsen to include tachypnea and tachycardia as the patient develops bilateral pulmonary edema. And although the question didn't provide it, another clue could be thrombocytopenia if you checked labs. And what about the treatment? How do we treat someone with this terrible exposure? Like most viruses, treatment is supportive. 
Although it's been tested, rabavirin is ineffective. In the most extreme cases, ECMO is becoming a useful adjunct in patients not improving with mechanical ventilation. ECMO is becoming a useful adjunct for many pathologies. While you load up the next and last question, let me quickly touch on the other answer choices. Choice A, cardiac biopsy, that's a very rare procedure. It's done to confirm myocarditis, which this patient certainly may have. However, given the history, a hantavirus ELISA would be a more reasonable first step. Choice B, testing for arthroconidia, that would be expected in a patient with coccidiomycosis. This is usually only seen in immunocompromised patients, which this patient isn't known to be. And lastly, choice D, leptospirosis, that's similarly caused by exposure to urine from infected farm animals, dogs, and rodents. Although the prodrome is similar to that of the hantavirus, in its second phase, it causes Wiles disease, which causes liver failure, kidney failure, and meningitis, none of which this patient has. Excellent review. And for the last question, we're going to do full circle back to toxicology. A 16-year-old woman arrives via EMS after she collapsed at a rave party. Her vital signs are a temperature of 105.2, heart rate of 160, respiratory rate of 22, and a blood pressure of 180 over 100. She's confused, agitated, combative, diaphoretic, and she has medriasis. Her reflexes are 4 out of 4 and clonus is noted. Her extremities demonstrate rigidity. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Is it A, malignant hyperthermia, B, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, C, serotonin syndrome, or D, thyrotoxicosis? We have a fever, tachycardia, hypertension, agitation, confusion, all from a rave. This has to be serotonin syndrome. That's right, and she has many of the major autonomic neuromuscular and mental status changes associated with serotonin syndrome. Serotonin syndrome occurs in a variety of settings. When a new serotonergic agent is added, when a dose of a serotonergic medication is increased, or lastly, when an overdose on the serotonergic agent is taken. In this setting, she most likely ingested MDMA or ecstasy, which enhances the release of serotonin. Sounds like it. And what's the treatment for this girl? Benzodiazepines, hydration, and aggressive cooling. Ciproheptadine may be administered, but has not been shown to have a significant effect. And with respect to the other answers, malignant hyperthermia, or choice A, that's a rare complication associated with anesthetic agents and succinylcholine. Choice B, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, or NMS, that causes lead pipe rigidity. It can lead to rhabdo and even renal failure if not treated. And lastly, thyrotoxicosis, that can cause similar but not all of the symptoms that this patient has. Common symptoms of thyrotoxicosis include nervousness, insomnia, fatigue, tachycardia, weight loss, hair loss, weakness, and tremors. Perfect. Let's close out with a rapid review. All right, I'll get us started. An iron overdose can cause an anion gap metabolic acidosis. Severe cases can lead to dehydration and shock. Iron overdoses should be treated supportively. In severe cases, IV deferoxamine can be given. There are a couple important landmarks to remember when estimating fundal height. At 12 weeks, the uterus should be palpable at the pubic symphysis. At 20 weeks, it's at the umbilicus. At 36 weeks, it should have reached the xiphoid process. Pyloric stenosis can cause a hypochloremic, hypokalemic metabolic alkalosis. Make sure you resuscitate before you operate. Pyloric stenosis presents with bilious projectile vomiting. It typically occurs between two weeks and two months of age and is more common in males. Diagnosis is made by ultrasound or by an upper GI series. Hemoperitoneum can lead to relative bradycardia, which is thought to be due to irritation of the vagus nerve. The double decidual sign is a normal finding in early pregnancy. Later, you would expect a gestational and a yolk sac in the uterus. 
B lines are indicative of pulmonary edema. A lines are a normal horizontal artifact. Absence of lung sliding can be seen in the setting of a pneumothorax, apnea, and superficial pneumonias. Hantavirus is transmitted by feces and urine from deer mice and is found west of the Mississippi. It can cause cardiopulmonary disease, renal disease, and hemorrhagic fevers. ECMO may be useful in severe cases. Serotonin syndrome presents with fever, tachycardia, hypertension, agitation, and confusion. Treatment is with benzodiazepines, hydration, and aggressive cooling. Think of MDMA or ecstasy for patients presenting from raves. All right, so that concludes the new content for Roshcast episode 32. Be sure to also check out the blog for questions from this episode and prior episodes, related images and tables, as well as bonus teaching points. There are tons of other great free resources there to help prepare you for the boards and for the wards. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Roshcast and at Rosh Review. You can always email us at roshcast at roshreview.com with any feedback, corrections, and suggestions. You can also help us pick questions by identifying ones you want us to review. Write Roshcast in the submit feedback box as you go through the question bank. Lastly, if you have a minute, make sure to rate us and leave comments on iTunes to help spread the word about Roshcast. We'll be back soon with more high-quality review. See you guys next time.